so here we are. Door of Hope uh, is going to turn 11, I guess Door of Hope Southeast is going to turn 11 years old this May, uh, coming in hot, and, which means it's almost been 11 years that, that this church, Door of Hope Northeast, has been in the making. Um, because as, as, certainly as, as long as Susanna and I have been around Door of Hope, uh, and I understand that this was the, the message earlier. The vision has long been that uh, Door of Hope would not just end or terminate with, with one local congregation, but that, but that a movement would be sparked that, that, would, that would create even revival around the city of Portland and beyond. And uh, there's a real bittersweetness. We talked about it last week at Southeast. You could see it and hear it in Josh and Darcy's faces and voices this morning. But... Um, the, the sending out of a community, many of you whom are close friends to Josh and Darcy as well as others at Door of Hope Southeast, it's, it's painful. It's painful, but it's, it's worth it, we believe. Um, and we know that some of you here are carrying a similar kind of pain as you've considered, like, oh man, there's people that I'm not going to be in the same worshiping community with anymore. Um, and so... Uh, all that pain aside, here we are, like with the excitement and the privilege and the joy uh, and, and the, the, we believe, God-given purpose um, of, of forming a new church community in another part of the city for God's glory. Um, we've been gathering kind of informally as, uh, well, semi-formally, uh, as, as a community every other week now for about four months. Um, some of you have been to some of that, some of you haven't, and that's okay if you haven't. Um, but this is our first Sunday morning, and guys, there's a lot of pressure on what to preach at something like this. Um, so I just decided not to. We're just going to bring the band back up. No, um, no so be- beginning next week, we're going to start about three months through the book of First John. So uh, if you're the type that likes to go get commentaries and stuff like that, First John's where we're going to be, um, study along. Uh, the community groups that we do have going, we'll, we'll be following along there. Um, which, First John, we'll, I mean, we'll get into it, but it's this incredibly beautiful letter um, about community and, and conflict in church community and, and love and the, the chief importance of love in terms of imaging what God is like in his relationship with, with, with us and with one another. And it, it's the perfect book to start something like this. But we'll get there next week. For this Sunday, um, there were just... There's just one short passage that kept coming to mind, maybe even three months ago, as I think it was at one point we were going to have a prayer meeting, and this passage just came to mind. I thought, no, I'm going to hold off on that, I'm going to hold off on that, and it just continued to come back and come back and come back. It's the three, first three verses of the book of Hebrews, and so if you have your Bible, uh, turn there, um, and, uh, and we'll do it. We're going to try to do it briefly this morning, as we're so far behind schedule, we want to get those kids up here as soon as possible, so... Forgive me if I fly through, but as you turn into Hebrews 1, um, uh, these three verses are just incredibly, incredibly, they've been incredibly foundational for me. Um, they, they lay this beautiful picture of, of the person and work of Jesus uh, from a writer who, while anonymous, um, had obviously spent years uh, by the time he or she wrote this letter um, meditating on both the Old Testament and the story and history of Israel and God's relationship with Israel therein, and the early teachings of Jesus and the apostles, um, perhaps God's hands on some of the, the letters as they were coming together. 
Um, but the result of this thing, of all this deep reflection and wrestling through it and how it all fits together, is this just theological masterpiece of a book um, written to persecuted Christians um, to try to give them encouragement and just courage and trust that whatever comes, Jesus is worth remaining in. Um, and so today we're going to try to keep this quick and simple. We've got three verses. We're going to try to do it quickly. Um, but I, I can't think of a better way to, to start our morning. And so uh, we'll put the scripture up here. Um, just read all three verses real quick. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he goes on to talk about Jesus, several verses on Jesus is superior to the angels, and the book moves on, he talks about Jesus is the true and better sacrifice, and Jesus is the true and better high priest, and on and on. But we're just going to focus on these three verses here. Um... So I just want to first highlight this, this phrase, long ago. So, so the writer of Hebrews is pointing out, some time ago, uh, the, the olden days, the days of the Hebrew fathers, the Israelite fathers, he's referring to this, this the entire history of the Old Testament. He's saying throughout that whole history, God was in the habit of speaking. God was in the habit of speaking. And it just might, this, never read this book, it's amazing. Uh, Francis Schaeffer has this book with this brilliant title called uh, God is, there it is, God is there and he is not silent. Um, and that's what the writer of Hebrews claims. If you were wondering, there is a God and he speaks. He's not mute. He speaks. Um, and don't overlook this, I mean, this is simple presupposition of probably any of us in this room that call ourselves Christians. You say, yeah, of course there's God, of course he speaks, but don't let the weight of this sail over you. God's speaking is monumental. Um, and I would just propose, if, if this weren't the case, so, so either if God didn't exist, if he did exist but didn't care to speak to humans, or, or if he did care to speak to humans but he couldn't do it in a way that was... Uh, authoritative and perceptible and understandable by us, um, then all hope is lost. There's no hope of salvation. There's no hope of life after death. There's no hope of anything to provide larger meaning or context for our lives. There's no, uh, there's no transcendence to ground the, the vapor of our lives and the quickness of our lives in. And the Christian story says that he does exist. And not only does he exist, he wants relationship with us, that he reaches out, he pursues, and he bridges every single gap, including just basic communication gaps, to be with us, though our parents left him. We've all left him in our own ways. He continues to pursue. Um, and I would argue that, that this mere fact, uh, that, that's so, so simple and easy to take for, for, for granted, is basically an incomprehensible privilege that we possess as humans. That God loves us, the creator God of the universe who exists outside of his creation, loves us, 
and not only loves us, but desires to be in relationship with us, desires to commune with us and communicate with us. And then this phrase, in many ways, so it's, it's getting at this idea that throughout the Old Testament story and the story of Israel, God communicates in all kinds of ways, be it visions, provide a supernatural vision to someone where they'd see something that was this revelation from God. Angels would come, these, these uh, spiritual messengers would come and, and bear messages from God. Uh, the prophets, of course, would, would be filled up, would be inspired. God's words, thus saith the Lord, would come out. And what followed would be the very words of God being pressed through them for their hearers, both prophetic words and prophetic events. And then, of course, there are occasional theophanies or God appearances. Think of like the burning bush or something like that, where God would dramatically show up with some sort of mediated presence and communicate. And this is an amazing reality, and it's an amazing history. But what the writer of Hebrews is going to say, but that even this glorious past has given way to something way better. Um, so we pick up in verse 2. It says, but in these days, so that was those days, but verse 2, in these days, these last days, which is just that standard formulation you get all the way back into in Acts 2, that, that understanding that Israel's Messiah had come in the flesh, they understood that he has ushered in the last days, and we're not waiting for really anything else except for his second coming. So we are, in, we are in the time between times, but it is the last time before Jesus returns to put all things right. And in these last days, which we're still in, he's spoken to us by his son. And you may have heard this before. In the Greek, the construction is simpler than that. It's just uh, in uh, son. In son. Um, and just to pause there for a second, that's, this is a profound... This is a profound reality. Um, The one who shares God's nature, the Son of God, has come into the world. And this is not just referring to the speech of Jesus, God's Son, but his very presence is is, is part of this communicative act where God is speaking in Son. To even glance at Jesus is to get some sort of full revelation of who God is and what he's like. The one who shares God's nature and essence has come. Philippians 2.7 says, the God of the universe, quote, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And, and, and Christians have believed for, for 2,000 years now that Jesus is God in the flesh, transcendent God transposed into the real human experience without losing or confusing his divinity at all. In son, that quote, spoken to us in son, means that all he has said and done constitutes the communication of God, even in greater fullness and clarity than ever before. Um, so there's a, there's a leap here. The writer's contrasting the, the time before and the time that we are privileged to be on the other side of now where Jesus has come into this world. The Son has come and lived among us. God has come to be with us. And it's like this quantum leap. And I, I had this, this is a stupid illustration. I probably shouldn't even use it because I don't think it's clarifying, but I'm just going to use it. I, I have this really distinct memory of, I mean, you probably have to be roughly my age to have this experience, but it, it, raise your hand. Does anyone re- remember being a kid when the Nintendo 64 came out? Oh, 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I just remember hearing whispers of it, like, because I was really, I had a Super Nintendo, was way into that, and I remember whispers of like, there's this new Nintendo. The graphics are like, they're like real life. You're like, what do you mean? Like, like, it's like looking in a mirror. <laughs> like, just this, like, legend grew. And then I finally, a friend, you know, a friend uh, got his hands on it, and I went over, and I remember the first time I saw Super Mario 64, and Mario's in 3D, and I was like, it's like, it's like looking into my soul. Um, <laughs> and it was, I, rem- I actually, I remember this quote. I said, I said to my friend, we were just speculating about what the next Nintendo console might be like, and I was like, well... I mean, clearly, if you think of the leap from the Super Nintendo to the Nintendo 64, there's no room to go until photorealism. Like, the next Nintendo will have to be real-life graphics. And uh, we're still working on that. Um, But it's it's that idea, it's it's that leap from the 2D to the 3D is almost the image that the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us. God spoke, and don't you dare for a second downplay it or neglect it or gloss over the fact that there is a God. He does speak, and he wants to speak to you. But now the Son has come. And as great as that was, this is greater still. This is greater still. And the rest of this now, the rest of verse 2 and into verse 3, is just going to build a case for just how incredibly amazing this is. And uh, the author of Hebrew is just going to give us these seven like, incredible statements of, of, of these attributes that Jesus possesses. So we're just going to briefly discuss them. And my hope is that we're not going to have time to exegete this deeply or whatever. Um, but as we kind of go through them quickly, I hope that you'll carry this with you as we, as we pick back up into worship together as a whole community. That, that, that the exaltedness of Jesus uh, would be heavy on our hearts and exciting on our hearts um, as we sing together. And so let's, let's do this. So here's, here's, where, here's where he goes next. So these last days he's spoken to us in Son. Number one, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So Jesus, the lowly carpenter, uh, born in deeply humble circumstances, executed as a common criminal outside the city by the Roman government. He has been appointed by God, the heir of all that exists. He is the heir of it all. He's the first, he's, it's this firstborn son image that the father is pleased with Jesus and has given him the inheritance of everything. And this is made more interesting when we look at number two, through whom also he created the world. And that's kind of, if you read that, you're like, huh, that's interesting. Through whom also God, that's, that's who he refers to, created the world. So, so this is, there's several passages in the New Testament that get at this, but, but theologians refer to this as, as Jesus as the agent of creation. That when we look back, in, in Genesis, it's not laid out explicitly, but rather we see implicitly, and New Testament fills in the gaps for us, that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was an active part of creation, and that every single thing that was made was made through him. Through him. And this gets really crazy. Well, well actually, 
We'll get there. Um, so Jesus is the agent of creation. This, this, again, this humble carpenter, Jewish man, 2,000 years ago, uh, was also, we're told, present before the creation of the universe and was, in fact, the one through whom it was all made. Number three, he says he is the radiance of the glory of God. And it's just this image of radiance is like the, the, the radiation that comes out from a, from a powerful light source. Um, Jesus displays the illuminating, visible aspects of God's glory. And so to look at this humble man teaching on the mountainside is to see something of the eternal God's glory right in front of your face, this says. Uh, Number four. This one's similar but subtly distinct. The exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. Jesus bears, you could say, the stamp of God's divine nature. I I really like this quote. There's a commentator named Donald Guthrie who said... The essence of the Christian revelation is that God is best seen in his son. The human analogy is, of course, imperfect because no human father is completely reflected in his son. But Jesus Christ, listen to this, perfectly shows all that is knowable about the father. Again, it's, it's the incomprehensible God made comprehensible. It's the, the, the true other brought into our language in a person. And, and he lost nothing of God's nature when that happened, this says. Number five, this is connected to one earlier. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so not only was he the one through whom creation was made, but he's the one we're told, and there's a couple other passages that get at this as well in the New Testament. Jesus is actively sustaining creation. The very molecules in your body are held together not because that's the way it must be, but because Jesus in his loving provision and providence is holding you together. And even more so, you imagine, I've heard this preached multiple times and it always sticks with me, like you imagine Jesus on the cross actively being the one holding together the molecules of the hammer and the nail that are being driven through his body because of his great love. Not just accepting it, but actually enabling it to happen to him. You might need to get your pipe out and chew on that one for a little bit. Um, Number six. The writer of Hebrews tells us then that Jesus, after making purification for sins, and so here the the author of Hebrews reminds us of the center of the good news. The good news is the gospel is multifaceted and it's, 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 there's so much involved, but I'd argue that the center of it is this idea that Jesus offered himself to cleanse or purify us of our sins. And this is the crucial distinction between good news and good advice. And I think Josh, has, Josh White's done a really good job of, of hammering on this lately, but Uh, Good advice and good news are not the same thing. In fact, they're radically different. Um, Jesus does all that is necessary for us to be purified rather than tell us what to do to be purified. And if you don't have that distinction straight in your mind, it's crucial for understanding and following and appreciating Jesus. And I would just pause here to say, like, whether you follow Jesus or not, 
this is an incredibly important diagnostic question just to ask yourself. Like, is, your, is Jesus for you this, this sort of advice-giving guru who sort of has the ticket to like living well and living in a way that's satisfying and sort of solving your problems? He sort of gives you the checklist that if you just follow, things, are, things, will, things will go well for you. Is that merely all that he is? If so, he's a, he's a bringer of good advice. Hey, I've got a few principles you might like. Or, or is your relationship with him marked by just a humble appreciation of the news that he's done something and as a result the world is a radically different place and your standing before God is radically different because you've trusted in what he's done. News is something external to you. It's something that just has happened and you simply hear about it. I suppose you could refuse to believe it or ignore it. But if it's news, if it's true news, then you just simply live in light of it. You say, okay, I now have to absorb that into my world and live as though that's true because it is true. And we call that, that response faith in the Christian tradition. So the writer of Hebrews points us back to the good news. And then number seven, after this, and this is interesting, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the right hand, most of you are probably aware of this, is, is traditionally the place of sort of privilege and power as it relates to kingdoms. Um, and it's super important that it says he sat at the right hand after making purification for sins because there's this principle we've I, we talked about it recently at Dorf Hope Southeast. This, these these Jesusisms, things like uh, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom, become the servant of all, or if you want to be first, you must become last. Uh, the, these sort of ideas, the sort of upside down kingdom transvaluation of values thing. Um, And what this tells us is that this isn't just some arbitrary uh, principle that God came up with for his followers. It's how he operates within the Godhead. This is core to his character and being, and he models it for us in the deepest way possible. Motivated by love for his distanced children, God the Son humbled himself to save us. And after that, he was granted all authority in the place at the right hand of God. That doesn't, of course, say he was fully divine before his incarnation, before he went to the cross, and so on. Of course, he had authority before that. But there was something unique this is pointing out about after this, this humble submission on his people's behalf, he was hoisted up to the place of prominence next to the Father in the throne room of God. There's seven truths about Jesus in those three short verses, and we're just going to pause there. All of those could, could be a, a, all those could be a series, frankly, and we've given them each about a minute. Um, but, but let's wrap up this way. The, the point here, the point for today is that Jesus was a true man, but not a mere man. He was not a mere man. He was God with us who saves. And he came into this world as the fullest revelation of God. 
Again, God transposed into human categories, into humanity itself. Real divinity modeled as real humanity. That's what Jesus was. Um, but I suppose we shouldn't end with two, two persons of the Trinity. Maybe we should, we should loop in the third. Um, so I just, I just want to mention um, what Jesus told his disciples uh, in the Gospel of John the night he was betrayed. It says, starting in uh, verse 5, chapter 16. I'm just going to read Jesus here. He says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, and nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we not only have a spirit-inspired Old Testament that recounts the, the many times and the many ways that God spoke to our fathers, to the prophets, and we not only have the Son of God come into the human story to live alongside us and image God perfectly amongst us, and a, a Spirit-inspired New Testament that has captured and collected all of that for us to study and ponder and live in light of. Um, we have the Spirit himself within us. And Jesus promised the Spirit would come and that he would help us understand, and he promised that this is even better than Jesus. In some way, it's better than Jesus staying bodily amongst us, that he'd send the Spirit to live and indwell each of us who've trusted in him. And so, here's the call. Um, even as we've reflected on this and continue to reflect on the words of Hebrews 1, as we move into another time of worship, we can do this with confidence. Even as all this is lofty and kind of difficult and some of it seems abstract, we can, we can do so with confidence that God, the God of the universe himself is indwelling us and is eager to open up our hearts and minds to know and to see and to appreciate and to love and to respond appropriately. Um, and so that's our agenda for today is to, we're going we're gonna, to, in just a minute, we're going to get the kids up here, we're going to get the children's volunteers up here, and together we are going to sing with these things and the, hopefully the forefront of our minds and hearts in response. And we're going to trust that, that even if this seems weird right now, the spirit in you going to help you understand and help you respond. That's our agenda today, and friends, there is no agenda for the rest of however many years God allows us to be a community in this city, but to lift high Jesus and see him draw people to himself, and that starts now. Um, so it's a privilege to be here with you. Um, sorry we're running, running behind schedule today. Charlie, Serena, I'm glad you made it. Sorry about the muffler. We're really glad you're here. June, everything okay? She's good. She's good. Um, let me pray. 
Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for um, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We know that everything is not about this one worship gathering, but we praise you for it nonetheless, Lord. What a blessing to be here gathered with so many friends and new faces. And um, Lord, we ask that this would not just be this thing that we've all shown up to, Lord, but that you would begin that hard work. And we know that, that work that will be difficult for us of molding us into something much further, uh, much deeper, much richer, which is the family of God expressed locally here as this distinct community. Lord, uh, we pray that you'd give us eyes for the long game, Lord, uh, living lives together, um, seeing one another have children, uh, seeing one another's children leave the home. Uh, Lord, seeing brothers and sisters pass on to be with you. Um, seeing sorrows, seeing joys. Lord, may we be the kind of community, Lord, that, that shoulders life with one another well. In the way you intended, Lord, when you set up the church as the place for your people, the church with your spirit, while you are absent bodily, Lord. Guide us, lead us, help us, Lord. We need you desperately. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.